Standing by the Terry and Ted podcast is sponsored by Jaguar Land Rover Laval. Get out of the big city and experience a construction zone free test drive. There is such a thing. Another edition of the podcast, Ted Bird. Yes, this is edition number. We're not numbering season three because uh, we don't want to. No, we don't want to. It's yeah. just every week we're going to go, let's do this one. Yes, yeah. there you go. So here we are with another edition and a very special guest from a, a very far away place that we're going to uh, introduce you to in uh, just a second. And we don't want to keep them waiting, so we're going to get right to our thank you to the good people at Jaguar Land Rover Laval. We were out uh, for dinner with the family the other night, and boy, did we have a nice time. Nino and Renato DiCubellos, two brothers who own Jaguar Land Rover Laval, uh, took Terry and I out for dinner. Actually, I think we ended up taking them out for dinner, didn't we? Well, I think we, yeah, it was our turn to pick up the tab, yeah, I think. Yeah, I guess, And, yeah. and we, uh, well, not only, we, we had an amazing time, because we, we've said, we've told you this a thousand times, they're lovely, lovely people, and we got a really nice history lesson about the company and how it started all the way back to the uh, early 1960s, started by their dad tinkering around in a garage and working with radios for cars and then buying a used car and then selling that one. And it's really a fascinating success story. Yeah, and a typical Italian story as yes. well. And, not, and I don't mean the stereotype. And if anything, it's a positive stereotype. Their dad to this day... 79 years old, retired, but he can't stay still. They showed yeah. us a picture of their dad last week up in a tree with a chainsaw. <laughs> Cutting a branch off a tree at their yeah. sister's place. Yeah. What? What? Yeah. I'll do it myself. <laughs> and uh, I also learned from uh, from Nino and Renato what FIAT stands for. I yes. didn't know that. <laughs> Apparently, FIAT stands for Fix It Again, Tony. <laughs> that made me laugh. Yeah. JaguarLaval.ca and LandRoverLaval.ca. Uh, don't just go up to look at their spectacular products. Go up and say hi to the guys. They're good and decent people, and they'll have all the time in the world for you. And I keep saying this. Um, it is a, a beautiful showroom with beautiful cars. And even if you're not in the market and you just want to look at some of the beautiful products, they'll welcome you with yep. open arms. Be happy to show you around. Yep. And the website, Ted? JaguarLaval.ca, LandRoverLaval.ca. Okay, I'm going to make a confession. Our special guest is uh, Mike Armstrong, and uh, we uh, began our interview with Mike Armstrong about 15 minutes ago, and I thought it was going so well, and uh, and then we had to stop because of a technical problem, and um, you would think the technical problem would be on Mike's end because he's literally on the other side of the planet, but it was here on Papineau, or on Chabanel, I mean. Well, the good thing is uh, Mike's been in the business for a lot of years, so yes. he knows about technical problems, and he understands that these yeah. things happen. So tell us all again what you were saying. <laughs> Where were we? Yeah. yeah, Mike has been, as I was saying earlier, Mike, you've been with Global since its inception, Global National. Uh, hit the airwaves in 2001, and uh, you've been there ever since, right? Yeah, uh, we actually, our first show was five days before 9-11, or one week before 9-11. Oh, wow. uh, so we hit the ground running, I, I'll put it that way. Wow. And before that, I was five years with uh, Global Montreal, which started in 1997, 25 years ago, this coming August. That's kind fantastic. Kind of a neat anniversary. We should mention that we're speaking to Mike from the Democratic Republic of the, is it the Democratic Republic of the Congo? Did I get that right, Mike? It, it is indeed. Yeah, I'm in the capital Kinshasa. And tell us why you're over there. 
Yeah, I'm taking part. There's a, an organization, a Canadian group called uh, Journalists for Human Rights, which um, it's uh, it's funded through uh, private donations, the federal government, things like that. They work in some countries like uh, Turkey, uh, South Sudan, here in Democratic Republic of the Congo, um, advocating for human rights, gender equality, things like that, and also uh, training journalists. Uh, trying, you know, if you want to have a democracy, you need journalism. And uh, so that's kind of why I'm here. I was given the opportunity to do some training with, uh, actually, we started out with two stations here in Kinshasa and then pitched it to a couple more. So now I'm doing four different stations. Uh, I'm, I just finished two and a half hours um, at Digital Con Digital Congo, which is a station here in Kinshasa. Two and a half hours with just cameramen and editors, not even a break an awesome conversation just talking about what we do, how we do it. And as journalists um, in the field every day, we don't stop very often to think about how we do things and how we can do them maybe better tomorrow. And so that's what we've been doing, sort of just stopping, looking back, sharing tips and things. Uh, you know, I, and there's this danger of being sort of the white guy that shows up and tries to show everybody how to do things, which is totally not what I'm doing. I, I really just try to say... Um, stylistically, here's some of the stuff we try to do in Canada. And, you know, maybe you can incorporate some of this. Uh, but they do it so differently here. It's incredible. But the goal, I would imagine, Mike, is to help a, uh, help grow a, a, a free and strong press in that part of the world. Is that correct? Yes. And, and, and I mean, what I do is similar to what I do in Canada. Like, I, I'm the national reporter covering Quebec, and I get to travel and stuff like that. But about 10 years ago, I pitched Global on a program to start up um, a training for our own journalists, which is not this, which is interesting because I can go into a high school and tell people how we do our job and this is how TV news works. But this is but what I do in, in Canada. I've done it in every global station multiple times is you go in and, and now you've got people who are doing the job. But you also sort of look at you stop again. You, you know, it's the same thing. You stop. You think about how you do it. What works? Why does that work? And maybe you're more likely to do it uh, moving forward. So I get to do it there. Why not do it here? What's the uh, what's the concept of pr a free press in the Congo? Is it similar to what we consider uh, to be free press here in Canada? It's super interesting. Um, like, so there, there's actually been more opening up. Um, there are lots of stations, very often the stations like uh, FTGO, which is a station I was at, they have a radio station, a TV station, and a print uh, publication, and they also put some of their stuff online. So um, I think most of the places I've been have all of that in the sort of the, under the same roof. Um, and they tend to be affiliated with political parties, which is an interesting thing. So people will ask me, so do you work for the government or do you work for an opposition party? And I'm like, well, no, I, I, I work for a media. That's completely different. So that's been different. But the challenges that people here deal with on a daily basis, they have more freedoms than they used to have. But at the same time, um, it's tough. I mean, it's a rough place, first of all. And second of all, people stop you to say, why are you here? You're not allowed to film me. Um, and I actually have a paper that says I can film. Um, but like I went to a port to do a story with a local reporter about fishing. And it was just freaking, it was chaos, I'm telling you, chaos. And we got stopped three times and had to show our papers. That gives you an idea of what uh, the sort of the hurdles they have to jump through here. Tell me why you chose to take this assignment, Mike. 
Well, it was kind of just one of those weird things. Uh, Global, actually, and CTV and different outlets, um, different outlets have a year where they're responsible for sort of putting someone forward to do what I'm doing. And so my Global this year put me forward and uh, Rachel Gilmore, one of my colleagues, is in uh, uh, Tunisia. But I interviewed uh, Aislinn. Uh, last fall, and he had a book that came out of editorial cartoons about the pandemic. And he he had called uh, and reached out to all sorts of artists around the world, and they had all said, yeah, please use my pandemic drawings in your book if you're raising money for a good cause. And I finished that, I said, that's great, and you know, Terry's doing great work. And uh, I got in the car, and there was an email from Global saying, does anybody want to apply for this project in Congo or and I'd just done this interview with Aislinn and I said that feels like I should do it and uh, as I said earlier I've done training in Canada and I so now I, I actually written a couple of full day seminars so I'm able to deliver those and tailor them to the group that I'm speaking to which is kind of cool what's the uh, what's the practicality of going home and saying to the missus um, <laughs> I have this opportunity to be gone for eight weeks in Africa in Africa um, what, to, how does that conversation go? <laughs> I'll tell you, I have a super understanding wife. Um, I, like I, I cover stuff. I mean, I, I did the tsunami. I've been to Haiti four times. I, I did Afghanistan a couple of times. Uh, I went to Ukraine twice before, like when they took over Crimea, I was in Donetsk. I was actually in a plane to land in Crimea when the Russians closed the airspace and we took back off. We took off again. Wow. And the pilot said, we have to go back to Kiev. Um, so I was there before, during that. Then when MH17 crashed, I went back in rebel controlled territory. Like, so my wife lets me go to these places. But the story I like to tell was uh, the Bataclan in Paris, where it was a Friday. I got home. I was tired. My wife said, was going to see her mom. So she, she left. Her mother lives in Victoriaville. And uh, so I, I sat down and I fell asleep in a chair at home. And uh, my, about half an hour later, the phone rang and my wife said, have you heard what's happened in Paris? And I said, no. And she said, yeah, there's an attack and there are hostages and people have been killed. And she said, should I come home? And I was like, no. Like she said, well, call the office. I said, yeah, yeah, I'll call the office. So I called the office and they said, yeah, yeah, we see what's going on. There, there could be lots of people dead. And it's terrible. Can you go? And I was like, yeah. So my standard answer is yes. I'll check with my wife, but yes. So, so I hung up the phone and I called my wife and she answered and went, I've already turned around. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> so that's how understanding my wife is about me going on these things. Do you have kids at home, Mike? I have two. Wow. And it's kind of funny. Yeah. Because like you go to Afghanistan when they're small and they're like, oh yeah, daddy's sleeping in a tent and they think that's cool. <laughs> uh, but then when they get older, that's when they start going, you're going to Kinshasa? <laughs> yeah, what on earth? Can, Mike, can you explain to me when you get that phone call or you make that phone call, you know, because when, you know, when people think of going to Paris, they think of, you know, sitting down with their wife or their husband, going on Expedia, you know, five months before you leave and you look for a hotel and you try and find airfare and blah, blah, blah. But when something happens suddenly like that and the desk says, yeah, can you go? Go. What when you hang up the phone? What transpires? How what 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 happens to get you to Paris? Yeah, some people have um, go bags. Like if you travel a lot, you'll have like a bag where you're ready to just grab and go. 
Uh, I haven't had to do that because usually you have enough time to get ready, which which basically means opening up a suitcase and throwing stuff in. We have a guy, Mark Blanchard, who works out of the Maritimes, actually, and, and he's the logistics guy. You, everybody should be blessed to have somebody like this person. He can get you anywhere as quickly as possible, and he'll get you a place. You know, the, like in Nice, uh, when the guy drove the truck, it was yeah. awful. Down yeah. from, from yeah. des Anglais. We were there within hours. And he had an, he had us in an Airbnb on Promenade des Anglais. Wow. So we were like looking out of our windows and off the balcony, and it was there. And the police said, "If we see you on your balcony shooting, we're coming to pull you out." Uh, Lac Megantic, when when the disaster happened in Lac, Lac Megantic, he called me at five o'clock in the morning and said, "You know, there's been a big fire. We need you to go pack a bag, three days, get there as quickly as possible." And we were there for eleven days, like. Uh, so and he the funny thing was he rented rooms that morning at five o'clock in the morning at two different hotels in Lac Megantic. Mm-hmm. Then he checked the reviews to see which one we should stay in, <laughs> canceled the other ones, and uh, I'll tell you, uh, CBC stayed in Sherbrooke. Uh, CTV rented a cottage out in the country with no internet, and we were smack dab in town. Wow. So, um, yeah. so you you would pack that bag and head right to Trudeau. And, yep. and get on the next flight to Paris. That's exactly how it works. Yeah. And, then, and sometimes and, you'll be at the you'll be at the airport and you'll see another journalist who'll be like, "Oh, we're going together." And then and then you get off the plane in Paris. And is there a car waiting for you, or do you have instructions? Like, what happens next? Yeah, Mark Blanchard will usually have a car waiting because right. the funny thing about TV, though, we don't travel lightly, right? right. Like we, we we we've got tons of gear, right? Lights, tripods, and stuff. So we tend to need like a, a van almost to, to move the gear that we've got. Um, and yeah, we, so then we, then we have to find a fixer, like somebody yeah. local who knows the area. <laughs> that like was Paris, obviously question. you don't, you don't yeah. need a fixer, but when you're covering like the tsunami in Indonesia right. and I don't speak the language, I literally went to the town hall and there were all these taxis and it was just chaos. And I yelled out, does, excuse me, excuse me. <laughs> Everyone, people stopped and turned and looked at me and I went, does anybody here speak English? And somebody went, I speak English. And I said, can I speak to you, please? Thank you. Wow. And, and we had a, and that's how we found a fixer in Indonesia. <laughs> Mike, most of these events that you've described that you've covered uh, were enormous tragedies, whether it's the tsunami or the Bataclan or Nice or the war in Ukraine. Do you have or does the industry have procedures in place so that someone like yourself who, who covers these multiple tragedies uh, doesn't uh, fall victim to PTSD or some sort of similar uh, uh, trauma? Yeah, and as a matter of fact, when I do the training at global stations across the country, I take the opportunity to make sure that everybody knows that those resources are available to them. Because sure, I've been to these places, but I'll tell you, one of the worst things I've covered was Lac Megantic, where everybody you met knew multiple people who had died. And it was... I remember I'm from the townships, like it was the same smell of the forest and it was the, and it was people interviewing people in French, like we do at home. Like it it was like that, that wouldn't hurt. Right. That wouldn't really hurt. But you go to Winnipeg and there was a story a few years ago where a little five-year-old disappeared and the reporters would go into work and they'd spend their entire day, you know, where's this kid? Where is this kid? And everybody's upset about this kid. And then they'd go home at night and they'd watch their story and everybody's talking about the missing kid. And then, and then like three days later, the kid was found in a Creek. I'm telling you all those reporters in Winnipeg, it it was a really tough thing. Uh, You know, the Magnata thing in Montreal, 
every reporter in Montreal had to watch a bit of that friggin' video. Like, uh, that was another bad one. Wow. Uh, I was in that friggin' apartment, excuse me. So yeah, there are, there are times when you're like, so how do you deal with that, Mike? And, and are there actually official procedures in place? Do your employers provide you with resources so that you can get, yeah. so that you can deal with the, uh, w- with the emotional aftermath of covering things like that? I'll tell you, I've been very lucky. Like, and I, and I know that people, I don't want to give the story away, but like I've been with people and we've experienced the same thing and, and other people react differently and it's completely legitimate. It's just a little chemical thing in the brain. That's all it is. I'll tell you, uh, MH17 to cover, to cover a plane crash and walk around when they're picking up the bodies in the field and, and which maybe isn't the part that bothered me to be honest. Um, but, but to drive through these fields and you see like, a wing over there and baggage compartments over there and the tray that the flight attendant pushes over there and then the cockpits in a field around the corner and and all that and then to fly back so now you get in a plane to fly back to canada and you sort of look around the plane and you think oh there's the there's the there's the, the drink cart and there's the doors for the things i saw those and you look out the window and you see the wing and you think oh wow my brain could decide that I'm no longer flying. And as a matter of fact, I didn't fly very much for that year after that. I didn't want to. And my parents wanted to take my kids away for a trip. And I was like, yeah, no, I don't think my kids are getting on a plane for a little bit. So I'm fine now. But that was the sort of where you realize a little switch in your brain could easily just be switched off. Do you ever think to yourself, maybe I'll cover city hall or hockey? (laughs) (laughs) Well, yeah. (laughs) <laughs> I, I'm, look, you know what? I'm not, I, at no point have I complained. No. I have been super lucky. Listen, super lucky. I, I just want to say you're not. It's not coming off that way, Mike. You're not. No, gonna, you I, have. I, yeah. You've had tremendous yeah. uh, experiences yeah. for sure. You and, could write a book, man. You ever yeah. thought about it? <laughs> I think about it a lot. Yeah, yeah, but I have to wait until the cameraman passed away so that I can tell all the true <laughs> stories of what went on behind the <laughs> behind the. But yeah, yeah, no, I've, I've uh, like Haiti, uh, I, w- I was with Sue Montgomery in Haiti when she was pulled out by her neck. Wow. And, uh, and then, uh, <laughs> so she got pulled out and the other journalists got pulled out and our driver got pulled out and I was in the back of the truck and I, I thought I'm going to watch Sue, something terrible is going to happen here in front of me. And I was in the back of a truck on a bench and the, the door lock, right? It was the door open sideways, the back door, not up. And they were trying to unlock the door to pull me out. And I was like, no, I'm not getting out of the car. And so they're banging with guns in the window going, pack, 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 pack on the window. Then they get in the back seat and now they've got the guns on my forehead. And I'm and they're reaching past me to unlock the door. And I'm going, no, I'm too scared. I'm too scared. You're not wow. opening the door. I'm not getting out. Wow. And, I, and so, yeah, there's been these ridiculous, surreal experiences and the other funny thing about traveling is now you'll go to Ukraine and somebody will say, oh, what have you done before? And you'll be like, well, I was in Haiti for that. And, and they'll be like, oh, were you staying at the Hotel Montana? And yeah, I was there. Hey, we were there together. Oh so it, it becomes a small world. I'll tell you that first trip in Haiti, I met a reporter, a female reporter, Vatican Radio, four foot something, very, very small woman. And, I, and she was the, as tough as nails. And I said, uh, so I don't understand. You, you, you're a freelancer. That was my first international trip. I said, I don't understand. You're a freelancer. So if there's trouble, they call you and you go. And she said, no, if there's trouble, they know I am already there. 
Yeah. And what an answer. You you come from a, an era of of uh, training and grew up in an era of uh as we were saying earlier before we had to start again, an era of giants. And I'm assuming you were trained not to get emotionally involved in any of the stories. And when you talk about some of the stories you've covered, that must be incredibly difficult to stand and watch bodies being removed from you know a crime scene or an air crash it must be unbelievably tough not to not to be emotionally involved somehow yeah but and then look i just tell stories and so i look at it as i have to let it in if i want to convey what what through my fingers uh and then through my voice in the story the the drama of what's going on so I don't know. Maybe I, I don't opinion opine. Excuse me. I don't opine in stories at all. But I'm, I'm not going to not sigh. Like this, yeah. it's tough. You know, there's yeah. the, like sometimes it's. I'm just going to tell you what I'm seeing, and uh, I think as a storyteller, which isn't maybe the right word as a journalist, but I it's not my opinion that gets into the story. But I can't say my emotion never gets into the story right. because I think that's important. Let's go back to the beginning. I'd, I'd like to talk about the fact that you you were uh, raised in Montreal, went to Beaconsfield High School. You're still uh, still living on the West Island in Montreal, still a, a, a born and raised Quebecer in Quebec. Um, and you were also raised in an era of what I refer to, an era of giants, the George Balkans, the Gord Sinclairs, the Neil McKenties, the you know it was an era of radio and broadcasting. The uh, Bill Hoaglands, the Andrew Marquis, the you know the really really solid Walter Cronkite type era uh, journalist. Did that that affect your interest in in the game? And yeah. did you learn like we did from listening to people from that era? A hundred percent. Like my first love uh, was talk radio. So everybody else was listening to music. Uh, I was listening. I was carrying our transistor radio and listening to Neil McKenty. Um, I was uh, Aaron Rand in the afternoon when he was at AM 60 doing a comedy show with Tassa. Like uh, I used to call radio stations as a kid. I, I, I used to record myself on the radio and things like that. So I love radio. Uh, you just brought up Bill Hoagland. Um, it's funny, uh, Ken Dryden has this, has a story where he talks about his number being raised to the rafters. And he said, he never deserved to be up there in the rafters with the other people, because those are the people he grew up with. Like those are the giants. No one ever skates as fast or is as strong as the people already there. Um, and I'll tell you just to have to Bill Hoagland is the standard for me, like as, as a news guy, right. Yeah. Uh, it doesn't get any bigger. And I only got to meet him once. Uh, I've only meet, met him once, and this is unfortunate, and it was at his son's funeral. Hugh. Oh, Hugh wow. was a, Yeah, he was a cameraman for CTV, um, working with Geneviève Beauchemin. And uh, as another national reporter, we always tend to cover the same stories in Quebec and see each other on the, on the field, in, in the field all the time. So, yeah, I knew Hugh uh, quite well. Uh, that hurt the only time I've met him. Were you a political junkie as a kid? <laughs> yeah, 100%. Because if love, you're listening to politics. Neil McKenty and talk radio, you must have been a bit, you know, you, you grew, A, you grew up in the right province, and, and B, you must have been a political junkie in high school. Well, I used to, uh, I delivered newspapers listening to you, by the way. Uh, <laughs> and and uh, when I would deliver the newspaper in the morning, I'd read the front page, 
and then I would put my finger in the hand in the top and I'd rip one of the papers so I could read the second page and then I'd rip the middle again and read the, the fifth page and so on. As I, and so somebody at the end of the route would always get a ripped newspaper because I was reading it. So I guess maybe that's why I got into the news. What do you remember? You've, you told me this before we got started. What do you remember about coming in the morning of whatever it was oh. in 1986? Yeah. I, I don't recall this. Yeah, yeah. You, you came to visit Shome. I really, it was a, the, uh, I remember the word going out, uh, is anybody interested in going to Shome to see the morning show? And I was like, uh, excuse me, is this a real opportunity? Um, yes. And so, yeah, I got to go in. You guys had donuts, and it was uh, it was the voices that I knew uh, and, and recognized, and, it, and I was in the room, and it was spectacular. So I can honestly say that was really – uh, other than my, uh, I should, uh, excuse me, my aunt, when I was like six or seven, did the stock exchange report wow. on CJD. So maybe that's the first time wow. uh, I I remember radio. But yeah, after that, I got to see you. And then I got in at CJD for uh, a little little while. I went in for a day and stayed for eight months. And then, uh, yeah, and then I got back into uh, radio with the CBC when I, after studying journalism. And how did I'll it- tell you, can I? Yeah, please. Can I go. tell you an interesting story? Yeah. Here's a funny one. I did move to Toronto for a few months, actually. So between uh, studying political science at Concordia and I applied for journalism and I didn't get in. So I went to <laughs> Toronto with my girlfriend and I was a collections agent. The most miserable job oh, you could God. have in the world. And one day I got back to my desk after my three month review and uh, somebody said, your mom called. And I said, okay. So I called my mom and she said, uh, Concordia Journalism just called. I said, what they want? She said, I don't know. I said, so I didn't have cell phone. I didn't want to call from work. I went to a phone booth and I called and they said, uh, there's a spot open in the journalism, uh, the graduate diploma program. Um, somebody's dropped. Somebody's not going to attend. You're the next name on the waiting list. Are you interested? And I said, when does it start? And they said, Monday. And it was like Thursday or something. I was like, <laughs> Yes. And so, yeah, that's, 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 if I, if my mom had missed that call that day, wow, I'd be a collections agent today. <laughs> oh my God. Wow. That's unbelievable. In radio, Mike, we see a lot more people come and go than come and stay. Not a lot of people stick around and make a career out of it. Uh, from your journalism class at Concordia that you know of, are there still many people who are still applying the trade? There are a few. Uh, one of them, uh, a colleague. From, so my class was actually, I think we were 18 people. Um, one of them's with Global Still. Another few other went into few others went into communications. Most of the others went into communications of some kind. Yeah, not 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 a whole lot of journalism journalists who are like in the field. Oh, there's a CBC host in Ottawa, actually, Hallie Cottenham. She was in my class as well. Your transition to television did you did you have to audition, Mike? Is there a tape somewhere of you standing in front of a camera going, Mike Armstrong, Global News? <laughs> you, you know, that's another really cool story. Um, they called me and said, "Are you interested? We're starting up this global station." I actually covered the CRTC hearings for the CBC when Global was applying for the for the license, wow. which is interesting. And then they called and said, hey, we're starting the station. Are you interested in applying? So I said, uh, sure. So I put my name forward. And they said, we need a tape. And I was I was a radio reporter. So where am I going to get a tape? And I I was working that day. Uh, was it uh, Brian Miles, I believe. Anyway, a reporter at CBC who was working for TV. And I was in radio. And I went with him. And I took my story. And I was putting pictures to it. That's all I had. And one of the women at CBC uh, said, 
heard what I was doing at eight o'clock at night and said, no, no, that's not an application. No, no. And she sat down with me and she wrote the script for me. She then wow. made me voice it with her. And then she picked the clips and she had it put together by an editor. And then she, at the end of the night, she handed me the tape and said, wow, now this you can submit. And that's just a great example of somebody helping somebody else yeah. for no reason. Wow. Like, yeah. That's an amazing story. Um, yeah. it, that, it, have you ever had a uh, chance? Has anybody ever called you from the States? Uh, no, not really. Uh, I mean, I've, I've had people say, are you interested? Because um, the opportunities, I, I know people, yep. that type of thing. And so, but I've never really, uh, I've been super lucky. And I've, uh, with the company that I work for, it's probably not perfect. But it's also not Bell. Um, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> Boy, did you read sorry. the room right? Yeah, you sure did. <laughs> no, hey, look, it's funny because my dad worked for Bell Canada for 29 years and eight months, right? Like, well, listen, Bell put every meal on my plate my whole life. Listen, there is a reality, and, and believe me, I was going to get to it because I want to talk to you about this. But there is a reality in this country, whether people know it or not, Newsrooms have been hollowed out both in radio and television by that company. And for me, who I consider, you know, I consider, I know the broadcast game. It's blatantly obvious when you turn on, doesn't matter what market you're in either, whether you're watching in Toronto or you're watching or in, in Vancouver or Regina. And I've seen them all because I live in, in British Columbia now. There has been a um, an abandonment of the responsibility of those licenses by that company, and nobody's doing anything about it. They're a private company; they can do whatever the fuck they want. I get that, but in terms of covering the country and covering the stories that matter to Canadians, the company that you work for has upheld that responsibility very 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 well and you're right to say that you you know you're i assume i don't know anything about your 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 boss or or your current position but you you are you know you're you're in a, you're in the right place with people who clearly care about the news and how it's covered well uh, the newsroom are my colleagues in montreal lost somebody this week um to uh who some people have referred to this week to me as the best boss they ever had. And it was just one of those uh, yep. budget cutting things. And they lost Jed Kahane, uh, which was unfortunate. Uh, so it's, it's a tough business. You know, if I can play devil's advocate a little bit, the, 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 the media has changed. Uh, the advertising dollars aren't there that, that were once there. Um, you know, the podcasts compete with radio um, advertising. Google sucks online ads suck so much away from TV. I don't disagree. Uh, I don't disagree with that. I'm sorry to interrupt, but there was no reason for the broadcast industry to wave the white flag, which is what they did. Um, take a drink. If you, if you want to talk, if you want to talk hollowing out, though, there, I, I'm not sure there's a more painful hollowing out than what's gone on with some of the print outlets in this country. Oh my gosh, that's a whole other story for sure. Um, and I, I, I want to ask you about this. Take take a breath uh, because I, I I would like to talk about the current state of media, but um, we've got to uh, say uh, thanks to uh, a sponsor. 
Um, and uh, that's uh, the UPS store here in Canada. Uh, David Drucker. How long have we known David, Ted? We've known David for going on 30 years, I would say. Yeah. David, um, I, I, I don't want to tell the story about how David saw the opportunity with the UPS stores because he could see there was the things were changing and uh, a lot of people were working from home and becoming entrepreneurs and the UPS stores, you probably know this if you're an entrepreneur listening to this, they can, uh, they can become like a wing of your business. If you've got packages to ship, um, if you're looking to pack a box, um, if you are sending an old tea set uh, to Auntie Griselda in North Battleford, Saskatchewan. If I had a nickel for every old tea set <laughs> I've sent to a great aunt, boy, oh boy. Um, they can handle that for you. They can take care of faxes and they can take care of packing and they can take care of labels. And they've got boxes and shipping. They know how to do it all. Um, and it's all in one spot. And when you find that... UPS store logo that uh, is becoming ubiquitous across the country. There's over 350 locations across Canada, and they're all owned by entrepreneurs in your community. So you're running a business, you're dealing with a guy who wants to help you run your business, and the one near my house in British Columbia is family run. When you go in there, there's a husband and wife team and the two daughters are packing the boxes. And I use them all the time because when you move, you ship stuff back and forth between relatives and family. You can do the same. Go to the UPS store.ca. We're chatting with Mike Armstrong from... Global uh, TV. Kinshasa. Yeah. I'm oh, from the yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I remember where he worked. I, yeah. I want <laughs> Who's that fellow again yeah, now? Yeah, 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 the TV fella. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the, the Democratic Republic of Congo. Have I got, did I get that right? Yeah, of the Congo. Of yeah. the Congo. Okay. And uh, yeah. we were, uh, I was getting into a barking mood there about the uh, current state, <laughs> current state of uh, television news. And, well, legacy and, media in general. Yeah, the media in general. It's, um, you know, there was, uh, you know, and I, I guess it's everywhere, Mike, because I was saying, Ted, I was, uh, Ted and I were talking about this. I was watching CNN last night and they had a breaking news story. Uh, about the bass player of Bon Jovi, the original bass player of Bon Jovi had passed away. And I thought, <laughs> what in God blazes, you know, that's on CNN. But I, 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 I find, you know, that there's, that the, new, the new model is, um, let's get rid of all the reporters and find some kids who are doing nothing. Uh, you just uh, if you knew how many people my age walk around nervous about that it's not even funny yeah uh, you, you start to think I, I, I want to earn less because you don't want that to be the equation that leads you to the door right well where, so where do, where does that leave um, where does that leave the broadcast game um, are, are we helping garner audience with that or are we chasing people away from legacy media um there's a lot of competition out there. And, uh, and so I think that's what leads to a lot of this cost cutting, unfortunate, uh, unfortunately, technology's changed a lot too. You can do things. You don't need as many people to do in, in television. I'm telling you the number of people that you used to need yeah. to put on a television station, it, it's less than half today. Like it's, it's incredible how many fewer people, um, for we're seeing more and more VJs, for example, people who are, going out now and they're shooting their own story 
they get back and they write their own story and then they cut their own story. They do all of that. And, and then when they're finished that, excuse me, <clears throat> when they're finished that, then they write their online story. That's tough. It's really tough. And then, so can I say for sure that the quality is there? No, but I will say that the effort to keep the quality high remains. And uh, to the point where I do my best, I've done my best to train other reporters. Like I, I, to, I don't want to say that I have that much of an impact, but I do, like, I probably don't, but I do, I, I do want, I want to make sure that you believe me when I say newsrooms care and the people in those newsrooms are trying. And if we pronounce a word wrong, like bass instead of base, mm-hmm. we might not sleep well when someone flags that to us. If, if I say someone's name incorrectly, I'm, I'm not going to sleep well. If I, re, if I refer to something as a machine gun and it's not a machine gun and someone calls me, calls me on it, I'm going to go back and change my story to, to, to you know, to, to reflect it. But I promise from coast to coast, every journalist worries about every statement in their story, every, to make sure it's the truth. I promise. Mike, we were talking about emotional involvement in stories. And on the way here today, <clears throat> pardon me, I was telling Terry about uh, the 70th anniversary of Dieppe. And uh, I think that was a pretty emotional one, wasn't it? Even though it wasn't, it was like revisiting the scene of a tragedy of decades ago. But I remember you and, and, and David O'Keefe telling me the story of being down on the beach at dawn with, was it Cam Stevens? Yes, Cameron was there, yeah. Playing, playing the uh, bagpipes? Spectacular. Bagpipes in the dark uh, at the same time, 70 years to the minute on the beach there. Uh, with a couple of uh, members of Black Watch who were in uniform. It was spectacular. I mean, I've had these ridiculous opportunities. And to be honest, like as a journalist, we tend to th- we tend to think of news as this is what's happening now, this is what's happening today. But I've had some incredibly cool opportunities to, uh, and I think it's part of the job, to remember stories from the past. So like on Remembrance Day, I I try to say names that otherwise wouldn't be said um, to remember people. So I, I was there for Dieppe. I got to do, uh, uh, Vimy Ridge. Uh, I've been to, uh, uh, what did I, oh, the, the 100th anniversary of the end of world war one. And I was all, we were in Belgium. We were in France. Um, like just these ridiculous opportunities. I was in, I was a member of the, of the Grenadier Guards actually in Montreal. I was going to say and you so served, in, you served, eh? Yeah, a little bit. Um, I'm, I still have lots of friends who are serving now. and uh, But 100 years to the day, at the end of World War One, I, I was in Mons, which is where my regiment would have been, which is where, like, it's just the coolest thing ever. Like, I, 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 the, the opportunities I've had, too lucky. Have you ever been in the field with uh, the Canadian military on any of their peacekeeping missions? Uh, uh, peacekeeping? Or on any of their, uh, let me say, yeah, I'll I mean, reword that, their deployments. Yeah, I was in Afghanistan with them twice for well, six that, weeks, yeah. five, five, six weeks, yeah, which was spectacular. Um, like, um, it's funny because I have a lot of time for soldiers. Like, I like soldiers. I, I'm, it's probably not the right thing to say. Um, but, like, that base um, in Kandahar, and then you, which was fun. Like I, fun, it's the wrong word. I sound ridiculous saying that, but I was, <laughs> I, I just walked around knowing how lucky I was to be there. 
and to experience what I was experiencing. And there was the Tim Hortons and there was, which was ridiculous. And then there was the, the hockey <laughs> rink and I played ball hockey with soldiers. And I, but then you'd go to these forward operating bases and you'd hang out with soldiers. And I got stuck at one at one point for four days because there was no way in or out. And, uh, they kept they kept saying, oh, you know, Rocket Man uh, is on vacation, and I was like, what do you mean, Rocket Man's on vacation? And they said, oh, Rocket Man's on vacation. Yeah, that's why we're not getting hit. And they really figured this guy who had, whoever kept hitting them every day or every couple of days had gone away for a few days, and they could tell because they weren't hitting him. And so then we I got out of there on a Blackhawk, and the next day or the day after, Rocket Man came back and he blew up the bedroom I'd been sleeping. Jeez. Oh my God, <laughs> Jesus Lord. Yeah, pretty funny. Cause, and they'd had a actually a, a VIP who'd been there, so that that was probably part of the impetus. They weren't trying to get me; it was trying to get uh, well the Canadian it, defense minister. Just a trip on a Blackhawk in a war zone is uh, the I would request a diaper myself. <laughs> but it, that's got to uh, be terrifying. No, it, you, it comes down, and they, they come in low, 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 uh, just over the wall. Then they land. And then the, the dust that kicks up in Afghanistan is like nothing you've ever seen before. And, I, and, and they're, they're taking out four, four or five of us, if I remember correctly. And um, so I, I remember passing the bags, right? Because you, you when a helicopter lands in theater, it wants to take off quickly yeah. before somebody can sort of get ready and target them. So we're putting this stuff in and I'm thinking, window seat, window seat, window seat. And so I'm like, hop in. And so the guy gets in and then I'm like, yes, sir. And then somebody closes the thing. And now I've got a window seat and uh, you're, I've got the video. Like it's, uh, we're flying low over Afghanistan. It, you just couldn't ask for a cooler thing. Actually, you know what I got to do also? We were flying from Spearwingar to Spinboldak. So from one forward operating base to another. And uh, the pilots of the Chinook said, hey, would you mind if we did some target practice? And I'm like, what does that entail? So the Chinook, were, they said, we're flying over the desert and it was nighttime and there, the Chinooks fly, there were no soldiers with us, just the pilots and the gunners and they two griffins and the griffins that like escort the Chinook wherever it goes. And so in the middle of the desert, they pick a target, the, the side gunners pick a target they, they start firing at like a bush and you just see tracers. Then the pilots have to take evasive maneuvers. So once they see, okay, they're, they're, they're aiming out the left side, they have to pull right. Then the griffins start engaging. Now they're, they're, their tracers going. Then the rear gunner on the ramp starts going and he's engaging and everybody's flying in different directions and tracers are flying and you've got the goggles. Yeah, I, Bill Gates couldn't get that, you know, couldn't yeah. pay for that. Like, Moi, je pas capable. I couldn't do that. I mean, it, it, it just sounds terrifying. I think I would be on the, I'd be on the Blackhawk looking for the trail of a, you know, a shoulder-mounted missile headed our way. I would be too terrified. It sounds to me like a really neat ride at La Ronde. Yeah. <laughs> I, I was, uh, we, we flew to Kabul one day. In a, um, uh, what do you call it, the little plane, excuse me. Uh, anyway, whatever the plane was, I apologize. And we're taking off and uh, we're sort of taxiing and there's a guy at the little hub window on the side. And I'm, it was just journalists flying. And uh, so I've got my seatbelt on and everything. And this guy's standing looking out the window. And I said, excuse me, can I look out the window? And he said, no, you're not allowed. And I said, well, how come you're allowed to look out the window? What are you looking for? And he went, rockets. <laughs> As you were. 
<laughs> Never mind. <laughs> I know what you mean, Mike, about the the admiration that you have for yeah. the military. I went to Bosnia in 2001, so it was no longer an active war, war zone. It was during S4, which was Stabilization Force. And I was invited to go over as kind of an, a media observer of the final implementation of the peace treaty. And I was so impressed with the professionalism of the Canadian soldiers, particularly the professionalism of the enlisted men and, and the officers. I thought to myself, these officers, these guys are going to be stars in the private uh, sector when they get out. They were just so together and so smart. I, yeah. Can I tell you a story in Haiti? Uh, I got out of Haiti in 2004. Uh, like the city was just bullets were going off everywhere. But Aristide got out on this Sunday morning and things started to open up on the Monday and I think I got out on like the Wednesday or Thursday, but it was the JTF-2, so our special forces that took the airfield in uh, Port-au-Prince. And they, I don't even remember who organized it or whatever, but they came to my hotel, the JTF guys, in a couple of uh, pickup trucks and and took me to the airport. And so the JTF guys wear jeans, uh, T-shirts or whatever, and uh, beards and sunglasses. And they're like, no pictures, no pictures. And we drove through the streets of Port-au-Prince and they've got the big, you know, machine guns on their chest, like Rambo, basically. You know, like it, it was the weirdest thing. Um, and then to get to the airport and they were in charge of the airport. It was spectacular. I'm going to take a break to uh, thank our friends at Matla Bonheur. We'll continue our conversation with uh, Mike here in just a moment. Matla Bonheur, I've been speaking on their behalf for quite some time now, for many, many years. It's another family-run company. And if you listen to the podcast, you know, Ted and I have an affection for family-run businesses in this age of the uh, giant, thoughtless uh, corporate uh, world. Um, the uh, folks at Matla Bonheur are a Quebec-owned, Quebec-run family company. Head office is on the West Island, and they started with one little store on Gwaine Boulevard in St. Genevieve, and there are now 18 locations around the greater Montreal area. If you've been sleeping on a mattress that you keep putting off changing, make sure you go and visit them before you do anything else. I say this all the time. There's lots of places you can buy mattresses, but you're not going to get the welcome, the kindness, uh, the manners of the passion about a good night's sleep uh, anywhere else like you will at Matla Bonheur. And because you listen to the podcast, uh, my friends at Matla Bonheur have offered up a promo call, a promo code that will give you 5% off Anything in the store, anything online, doesn't matter if it's regular price or sales price. If you're looking to improve your night's uh, sleep, you want the promo code TER05, that's T-E-R-O-5, or TED05, T-E-D-05, 5% off whatever you buy online or in store at Matla Bonheur. You can visit them at matlabonheur.ca. Mike, did you watch the news when you were? I know you mentioned Bill Hoagland, but um, did you did you watch the you, the era of Brokaw and and um, uh, Peter Jennings and 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 those giants and 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 did they and did they influence you in any way? I've always loved the news. I, yeah. I really have. Uh, if I have any, if I have two passions, it's movies and the news. And so, yeah, I mean, those are the standards. The, the names you just uh, listed, but it, the, one of the cool things was starting out in the business and meeting the, um, 
Herb Lufts and the oh, Brian wow. Brits yeah. and the Bob Benedetti and and then having them know my name when I'd see them on the road in the field and yeah. stuff. That was super fun. And uh, unfortunately, I think I'm one of those guys like who's been around for too long now uh, and has seen uh, I've seen reporters start and then go on to other businesses and stuff. And, and I keep doing the same thing. But um, but I, and I've my, seen a lot. Of, that, it's funny, too. I've seen a lot of people move up and do other stuff. Yeah, but but I, I've got this weird job where it's never the same thing. Why listen, am I going to move? Listen, th- I, I think that's a tribute to you. And I know how you feel. Because you, you, I think all of us in the game have a little bit of the imposter syndrome. When, you know, when I was standing next to George Balkan the morning he retired, I thought, I don't belong here. I do not belong in the company of these people. And, and, and then you get to a point in, in your career, if you're good enough and you've been around long enough as you have, as an accomplished reporter and journalist and storyteller, and now there are people standing next to you saying, oh my God, I just met Mike Armstrong. You know, that, that, that's, that's part, it's, but it's part of the, it's part of the journey. It really is. And, and I think you should sense, you know, take a sense of accomplishment uh, in that because obviously you did belong next to Herb Luft and Bill Hoagland and, you know. And for us, it's pretty cool that Mike Armstrong listens to the Terry and Ted <laughs> podcast yes. when he's over in Ukraine yeah. covering the war. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. It, well, I, 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 it's been super fun. It, it's never the same thing. And I, I have these ridiculous opportunities. Like um, during the pandemic, uh, I went down, you know, the January 6th thing, right? Yeah. Um, the inauguration was a couple of weeks after that. I, I don't even remember the day. But once January 6th happened, they they decided, you know what? The inauguration is going to be bigger this year. Yeah. So they sent myself and Barry Donnelly, who's the cameraman I work with all the time, back in Montreal. They sent us down to Washington to do the inauguration, which was super. I, I saw the helicopter. Wow. I was also in the mall when uh, Obama gave his, uh, for the Obama inauguration, by the way, which was a pretty big highlight. But then, uh, so then I saw Trump's helicopter take off from the White House. I was there for that. But then... A couple of days later, I get this call saying, hey, we've got a story in Florida. Would you mind driving down to Florida to do this story? I'm like, oh, for crying out loud. I have to drive to Florida? Um, and then I talked to a friend and he said, it was the pandemic. He said, do you have any idea how much I'd like to travel right now? I said, okay, I'll do the story. You know what that story was? It was a, a 93-year-old woman who had left Berlin as a seven-year-old um, and she went a Shanghai Jew. She went to Shanghai. They lived there for years. She went to Australia. Then she went to the States and she raised a family in the States. And she always knew or figured, excuse me, that her best friend from when she was seven had died in the Holocaust because they lost. She lost a ton of family members. It was terrible. Jewish growing up in Berlin. You know what happened last year? She found her best friend after 85 years and they're friends again. Wow. I got to go down to Florida and meet these, this woman. It was just the greatest story possible. I One of the things that I, I was able to do when I was in my 20s, I, I got in the rock business for a little while, and I was on a bus, on a tour bus with rock bands for about a year, and I got to tour every nook and cranny of the country. I've been to places in Canada that I didn't even know existed uh, before I got on that bus. And I was wondering, in your travels, 
Have you ever gone to a place in this country where the assignment editor has said to you, um, I, I, I need you to go to Nokomis and, and, you know, or a place, you know, somewhere where you've had to say, where the hell is that? Well, I, I chartered a flight to Shibugamu once uh, to cover forest fires. <laughs> And I wasn't even sure Shibugamu existed. Uh, like, it's, like it's, it's English people, you say, oh, Shibugamu, like, yeah. it's way off in the distance. It's yeah. an actual place. <laughs> um, Much like Timbuktu. A, yeah. Well, in French, they say les îles mouk mouk. Uh, my wife's francophone. And uh, so I say, well, we, in, French, in English, we say Shibugamu. And she's yeah. like, Shibugamu exists. And I'm like, yeah, I guess. But, anyway. <laughs> uh, but uh, you know what I got to do? So one election... I got to travel across the country. We had a Learjet for two weeks. And so Sweet. we started on Vancouver Island in Tofino. We flew to um, Alberta. Where the heck were we in Alberta? South of Lethbridge, Alberta. Then we flew to Brandon, Manitoba. Then we flew to uh, Yarmouth, Nova Scotia. Then Bromo, Quebec. Then Peterborough. And we did the show in all these different locations. Wow. Then the next, then the next election, wait, this one's even better. Uh, myself and Kurt Brownridge flew to Newfoundland, did a couple of stories there. And then flew to Halifax, picked up an RV, like the biggest RV you could yeah, rent. Yeah. And I drove that to Victoria. Fantastic. And did, and, and did election stories all the way across. That and is in amazing. Quebec, in, in Quebec, people don't really know who Global is that much uh, all the time because you know they listen to they watch TVA or whatever. Yeah. But once when you when you put Global on the side of an RV and you yeah. drive out west, everyone yeah. waves to you and they know <laughs> they know they've oh I've I've been following your trip. Yeah. You know, it's pretty, yeah. It's pretty neat. yeah. Say hi to Donna for us. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It sounds, Mike, when you talk about the the events that you've covered and there, so many of the major events of the last twenty years, it sounds like you're the go to guy. Uh, is it unusual for the go to guy to be in Montreal and not Toronto? Or does it, or does it matter? Uh, no, I don't. I don't. I don't think it matters. Um, no, I, uh, we've got people that travel, but I've got a very understanding wife. I get to travel. I, I don't know. I, it's been we've been really lucky. I, I, you know, and there's a strategy to it. I always think um, I want to make sure. Here, I'll tell you my my rules. Don't say no. I try never to say no. Yeah. Uh, my wife helps with that, and I try not. Once you're in the field, I try not to be. Need, I try not to need direction, like management. So I'll try to propose ideas, like. I'm on the, I'm in the field. I don't want the office to have to give me story ideas. So I try to give them as many story ideas as possible so that I don't need that management. And then the other one is I don't ask to go home, to go home. Um, and meaning some, you know, some reporters will go somewhere and then they'll, they'll say, okay, can I go home? When am I going home? Well, you just got there. So I, I, it's a rule. I never asked to go home. And I think those three rules have served me well. <laughs> this is a perfect opportunity for me to ask you, it's a question that uh, that that belies my. Um, it's not a serious question, but I'm curious about this because I love airplanes, and you described being on a Learjet, which is a very very special thing. Doesn't happen all the time, and I've often wondered, not with, you know, uh, not not with the if you're a correspondent for uh, sixty minutes. I, I don't picture them getting an assignment in London and flying in 31D. And I was wondering if you get the call and you have to go to Indonesia, which I know requires 
probably Montreal, Toronto, Toronto, Vancouver, Vancouver, you know, until you get to where you're going. Do you have to sit in 31D? <laughs> well, you know, it's, it's interesting you've raised that. It, that the, it's funny because I, yes, I always sit in 31D. Okay. Except, right. Indonesia, except Indonesia for some reason. Oh. So this the tsunami happens in 2004 and Air Canada donated a plane full of water and tarps and stuff. And we got on that plane oh, okay. and, flew, and flew to Jakarta and then... <laughs> and then my, the cameraman that I was working with, Tim Lee, at the end of our trip, got on the phone with Vancouver, our, where our bosses are, and said, I don't think you understand the crap we've seen. We should come home in first class. <laughs> and so <laughs> and, and so they sent us in first class nice. home. Nice. Uh, and then here's the funny thing. Ten years later, I went back to do a 10th anniversary story, and we only had uh, five days on the ground. And so we had to fly to Jakarta and from Jakarta, you have to fly up north and everything. And uh, so they, we had to hit the ground running. And then I had to get have the story done within like three, four days or written within three days of being home. And it was like a 20 minute story. Right. And so the, the person putting that show together also said, I have to send you in first class so you can sleep in the, on the plane. Right. So for some reason in yeah. 20 years, my first class trips have always have only been Indonesia. It, listen, it's a fri- <laughs> the word I was looking for is frivolous. I know it's a frivolous question, but if you've traveled, you know, anybody who traveled oh. and anybody who travels for work knows, you know, travel sounds exotic until you have to do it, until you have to do it every week or every month or whatever it is. And then you have to do it in a pandemic. Yeah, and then, you, you know, you have to do it in destinations that are, you know, there's, there's a difference between getting on an airplane in Montreal and going to Toronto or, or Winnipeg. But then when you have to go to Kiev or, you know, Jakarta, or, you know, the, the, yeah. the, those are arduous trips. Well, can I, here's, here's a funny one. You, you'd, uh, I've done this a few times traveling to Haiti in 2004. Uh, there were three of us on the plane, American airlines flying Miami to Port-au-Prince. And there were three of us and it was in the middle of a revolution and the flight attendants <laughs> hugged us as we got off the plane. Oh, wow. And, wow. Yeah. And, and then flying from, I went to cover the aftermath of hurricane Harvey in Houston and we flew to Miami and I think there were. 10 people on the plane because Irma was coming. So they're they're flying more planes in to get people out and the planes that are going in are empty. So that's, those are, that's fun when you're in a plane with 10 people. Although you do realize you're going the wrong way. (laughs) Last frivolous question. Tell me you have an aeroplane card. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, good. Yeah, I I don't travel. It's not, you know, we've just, we've just gone through 20 years, so I don't travel that often. Yeah. Um, but although this year I did a couple of weeks in Ottawa, then I did several weeks in Ukraine yeah. and I, was, caught, I caught COVID and st- got stuck in Poland for a week. Yeah. And now I've done two months here. So I've been gone way too much this year. I was going to say your, your, your wife may disagree with you. I don't travel that much. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I, I've asked her to bottle. She said, I really miss you. And I said, well, could you just bottle that up? So that in, in, a, in three weeks you can like pour some of it out when you need it and you're sick of me. We need to talk about uh, our newest sponsor, Voswin. They're an engineering firm. An engineering firm came to the Terry and Ted podcast. How about that, Mike? (laughs) Wow. An engineering firm hired us a couple of knuckleheads to talk about them. Sean Smith, who is the founder and president of Voswin, said, I think the people who listen to your podcast could possibly use our, uh, our services. Voswin is an engineering consulting firm 
They do electrical engineering and design, industrial engineering and design, uh, software development. Uh, what they do basically is if you have an idea or an existing product or service that you want to enhance and it has an engineering component, they can help you out. They can take you through the process and they can, if you have an invention idea, they can take it right from the drawing board to market. Out of your mind, yep. out of your mind and into your hands, as I like to say. Here's an example, um, and this, is, uh, this isn't this is a real example, but it's a good example. When Murray Sheriffs was on the podcast, we said, Murray, you got any ideas for an invention? And Murray said, yes. Murray said, I want, to have, I want a car seat where instead of having to lean and twist and turn and to get the child in the seat, it's on a swivel. And you just swivel it around so it's facing out of the car and you just put the child in and then you swivel it back and it locks in. And we told Sean about that and he said, that's perfect. We could do that. That's the kind of idea that they can work on. Very simple. You don't have to reinvent the wheel. Just reinvent the car seat. (laughs) Are you looking to reinvent the car seat? If you have any kind of an idea that has an engineering component that you're not sure about and you want to take it to the next level and you want to invent or innovate... Go to Voswin, Voswin.com. Mike, um, how long do you have to be uh, where you're at now? And um, what, can you describe what it's like where you are? This is an incredible place. Um, it is a giant, giant city. Uh, one of the biggest cities. I think it's the biggest French-speaking city in the world, if maybe second or something. But it's, it's almost chaos. Um, there are no rules. Imagine a place with no stop sign or, or traffic lights. Jesus. Um, yeah, you know, it's chaos. Um, to the point where every car, there's this battle, but to get three inches in front of the other car, and then you get to take that lane. And then the car that loses that battle can't get upset and follow because now they've got the car behind that car that they have to compete with. And so it's, a, it's just chaos on the roads here. And uh, people show up late for everything all the time. Mm. Nothing ever starts on time because of the, the embouteillage, the, the traffic that they have. Um, it's dirty. It's very poor. Um, and yet people, it, it's funny. It reminds me, and, and it's not a compliment and I apologize, but it reminds me of Haiti where after the earthquake, um, people were too scared to sleep in their house, but they would, we would see them in the street ironing their shirts because wow. they cared about that. Yeah. Like that, and yeah. so here too, I, I see this where you know people are doing their best uh, to make money and, and provide for their families and, and things like that. So I've been going to different stations. Um, I've gone to uh, four stations, and I I'll sort of start my stay with a a, a, a seminar for the reporters and, and anybody who wants to participate and then I go out and I've been doing stories with local reporters and shooting them and editing them with a reporter and a cameraman uh, and then they get presented on the news here with uh, which is kind of neat um, and then so I've done four I'm here for two months and I have about wow. a week and a half left have you had an opportunity to get out into the countryside Mike and see what it's like outside the city uh, we did go to, this is quite interesting, the former president owns a nature reserve. And so in my first week here, we went out there and uh, I saw zebras and lions and stuff like that. It was interesting and, and it's beautiful out there. And boy, that former president must have a lot of money. Um, and uh, uh, and then, uh, but uh, in the city, I've had the opportunity yesterday, we went to the market, which is the most 
chaotic thing you've ever seen. As a matter of fact, the office, the people I'm working with weren't happy to hear I had been there um, without telling them. And then uh, I went to Kinkole, which is outside the town, sort of on the, and that's a, a, a fishing village, which was just incredible. We were in the, these boats that they carve out of logs and uh, speaking to fishermen out on the water and then speaking to salespeople in the market. Um, it, like National Geographic, I'm telling you, like it was just wow. surreal. Have you been able you know? to experience then, the hippos versus the river people? Apparently that's a thing. <laughs> I have not seen a hippo yet. <laughs> no uh, way. Yeah. Well, I, apparently I, I there's a big, there's a, there's a, an ongoing war between people who live along the riverbanks and hippopotamuses. They're, uh, they don't get along at all. Hmm. But I, I'm telling you, when I tell people that we swim in lakes because there's, there's, there are no fish that are going to hurt us. There are no snakes that are going to hurt us. There are no hippos that are going to, they sort of go, wow, that must be nice. Yeah. Like we're pretty, like. Here's the thing, guys. When you travel, you get this perspective on Big how time. freaking lucky we yeah. are to live Big in Canada. Yeah. Uh, and that perspective means that you can get stuck on traffic on carry and you don't care. Yeah. Sadly, sadly, it only lasts nine days. Yeah. <laughs> on day 10, on yeah. day 10, you're like, you're right. what the hell is this traffic? <laughs> I saw you post something about a motorcade, Mike. What was the thing you posted about a motorcade that oh, was so unique? I, I saw the president drive by uh, in his motorcade, which I think is about four times. I've seen the president of the United States move in Canada. I've seen him move in, the, in the Washington. It is one quarter the size of the motorcade that travels through this city. And they close everything down for him. Like, so it's incredible. Like uh, with, with, by the way, pickup truck after pickup truck after pickup truck of soldiers, uh, you know, weapons at the ready the whole the whole way through. Is that a security issue, Mike, because of instability, or is that just uh, paranoia? Uh, you know, I, I don't know, uh, but I'll say this about this country. They, they have some real problems in the East, like most of the violence and the problems in, are mm-hmm. in the East, which, which, by the way, is where they border against Rwanda. Uh, there's, a, there's a lake, Lac Kivu, where... During the, after Rwanda genocide, a bunch of people left Rwanda. Anyway, there are these militias to this day in that eastern area of this country that that this country, Congo, says are supported by Rwanda. And in the last week, they've, there's actually been f- rockets fired into Rwanda. Then the ambassadors have been summoned. Uh, they've stopped flying planes between the two countries, like commercial, uh, excuse me, uh, passenger planes. That's not happening anymore. Mm. So, like, there's the real possibility of a war. Wow! It's a couple of thousand kilometers away, yeah. but people are starting to get a little nervous. Um, That's an interesting perspective. I was just thinking about swimming in the Laurentians and Lac Waro, or you know, yeah, hippos Arsham. and crocodiles. Not yeah, a factor. Nothing there. No. That can, you know, you jump in for a quick dip in Lac Archambault. Nothing's going to no. eat you. No, <laughs> that's a interesting. Yeah. Yeah. You know, guys, I, I should add one thing about uh, how lucky we are while we're on perspective. I can't show pictures of my house or my cottage to people here. No. Because I almost feel guilty. Right. Like, that's, I don't, do, do I have a million dollar house? No, I don't. Um, but I have a really freaking nice house. You know, a nice middle class house. Yep. And my, my grandfather left my sister and my brother and I a little cottage up north. Like, how ridiculous is that? And mm-hmm. here... I'm telling you, it's it's um, it's a really tough life here. What, We're really lucky. What do you miss? What's the first thing you're going to do when you get home? 
Well, that's a good question. I miss my family more than usual. I'll be honest. <laughs> my uh, my son and my son turned eighteen yesterday, so. I think one of the first things I'll do is buy him a beer. That's great. This is probably the longest you've been away, is it? It is. Yeah, this will be the longest wow. uh, by a couple of weeks. Yeah. Yeah. I because I know you know now that I live in BC, the first thing I want to do is have a hot dog when I get, <laughs> when I get back to my, Montreal. Because I, I would imagine uh, you're probably the the uh, the fare of food is probably a little different, eh? Yeah, it's uh, it's this is one of the most expensive cities in the world. Wow! Uh, so, like the 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 only restaurant I can walk to at night, which is because it's forty meters away, is super expensive. Yeah. Like it's uh, uh, and luck, it's global that pays sort of my expenses and my meals and things like right. that. And for this trip, somebody said, "Oh, we're not going to do per diems; just charge whatever it is, and you, you don't really have a cap because it's super expensive." Right. I would not be able to to survive here on Global's per diem, because that's how expensive it is to eat in a restaurant. When you uh, when you leave, uh, again, this is my fascination with travel, um, you're going to go downstairs with your suitcase or outside with your suitcase. Where do you go? Like, do you go via London? Via Like, how do you get out of there? Yeah. I'm not nervous about that at all. I'm flying Kinshasa to Paris to Montreal, okay. which is pretty good, actually. Good. But what I'm nervous about is the airport here because yeah. I, I, a couple of one of my bags didn't show up, and so I had to go back to the airport a couple of times uh, to get it. And the airport is friggin' chaos. Like a lot of people, uh, my wife at one point had said, "Oh, maybe I'll go and join you," and I was like, "I don't think you'd make it out of the airport." Like it's, it's uh, like, and there's this thing. At one point, the government government here didn't have enough money to pay its employees, so they. The president literally said something to the effect of, if you're somebody who collects money for the government, take a cut. Sounds like a ridiculous thing to say, but that's how they kept the government going. And so there's this tradition of coupage that you, you just take a cut of stuff. So everywhere you go, like they don't have scanners at the airport. So somebody goes through your bag. And I, I went with one of my colleagues who was leaving and he had a mask he had bought at a market. And the woman looking, scanning his bag, opened up, lifted up the mask and said, where's the government document for this? And I, and he didn't speak French. So I said, she says you should have a government document for this. And he said, what are you talking about? It's a $5 trinket. And I turned to her, I'm like, it's nothing. It's a $5 toy. It's nothing. And she said, well, if you don't have the government document, then you have to give me some money. And I was like, and it, it's, wow. it took, it took me a week to figure out how things work here. But if you just go, no, 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 no. And you zip up the bag and you go, give me the sticker. Let's go. We're out of here. Then people go, okay, you don't have to give me money. <laughs> and just to get into the airport, they'll say, no, you got to give me money to get in the airport. And you just go, no, 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 no I don't have to give you money. Yeah. And you just walk by them. I, but everybody asks. I don't, I don't know if you're following what's going on here, but people are really pissed about Pearson and Trudeau and everything else. That sounds like a, yeah. Pearson and Trudeau are a cakewalk compared to that. Um, Mike, Mike, I, I, I can't thank you enough, uh, for a couple of things for uh, being so kind with your time and generous with your time and also for being a fan of the podcast. I can't tell you what a big kick Ted and I got out of the notes that you sent from overseas to tell us that we were keeping you company. It was, uh, it was very kind of you and we really, really appreciate it. I, I, I could talk to you for quite some time, but what time is it there? It must be, it must be getting late. Yeah. It's going on 8 o'clock. Oh, okay. all good. All right, all good. Not too bad. Can you get the hockey? <laughs> you know what? It's, 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 that's a great question. What I do in the morning is I go straight to YouTube and the NHL, and they put up an eight, nine-minute synopsis of the game in order, 
So you don't know who won and you watch nine minutes of highlights. Right. And, and it's, it's been great. I've done that since the beginning of the playoffs here. Two months. You, you don't have to say to the people of the Congo, don't tell me what the score was in the game <laughs> last night. <laughs> No, no, you really don't. <laughs> Mike, safe travels. Stay safe. Bon voyage. Um, I uh, I hope you have a nice trip home. Uh, maybe you'll get bumped up to front front of the plane and and uh, enjoy that cold beer with your boy. That uh, I just I think it's a, a really wonderful thing that you're doing there. I'm sure you're making a difference. And uh, it was nice of you to take the time and sit with us today. Thanks so much. Well, gentlemen, if I can say thank you. Uh, for having me and giving me the opportunity to talk about myself for 20 no, that's a little weird but uh, i'm a fan and i enjoy the podcast i loved you guys together for years um and the opportunity to talk to you is uh, an honor excellent thank you so much thanks mike thanks mike we'll see you later thanks guys bye-bye mike armstrong from global national all the way from the democratic republic uh the congo, congo. yeah yeah Thank it's you. neat that it's the french is the main language there right yeah. because it was a belgian colony yeah yeah absolutely it's quite interesting africa i've been to south africa uh i don't think i've been anywhere else in africa besides south africa but it's a, a fascinating fascinating place yeah. probably one of those places that has the best and the worst of everything. And it's really terrific to talk to somebody who's as good at, at the job as, as Mike is, as accomplished as he is. And also, it's, it's nice to talk to a broadcast junkie. Yep. You can tell he you know loves everything about what he's blood, doing. Yeah. It's in his blood. Yeah. Um, we uh, are going to wrap up at the episode, but we have to talk to things. We got to do... Uh, we have to say yes. uh, hello and thank you to uh, the Mersons. Yes. Merson Automotive on Saint-Jacques, west of Cavendish, and online at mersonauto.com. Tires are their specialty, but they are a full-service garage, as they have been for lo these many years. And Terry and I have been speaking on their behalf for, got to be going on 25 years now. And we speak on their behalf because we believe in them and in their product. The Mersons operate with honesty and integrity, which uh, is not easy to come by. Uh, a lot of the time, but uh, but you'll get it from the Mersons. And for that reason, they're a third-generation family business, and generations of customers uh, have been going to the Mersons. Your dad might have taken his car there. His dad might have taken his car there. People keep coming back to the Mersons because they get treated right, and so you will be too. At Merson Automotive, Saint-Jacques, just west of Cavendish, online at mersonauto.com, whether it's for tires or repairs, or routine maintenance. Whatever needs to be done to your car, Merson can take care of it, and they will not sell you a product or a service that you don't need. And you have my word on that and Terry's word on that. And the owner's word at that on that. The owner is at the counter. That's right. No letters necessary. No, 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 you don't no, no, have to no. send an email to Toronto. The owner's right there. At the I counter. want to speak to the owner. Yeah, yeah well, yeah. that's me. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> what can I do for oh, you? He's in the shop. Yeah. Let me go get him. Yeah, yeah that's uh, one of the great things about it. Poseidon, thank you very much for uh, keeping it all together, especially with our international connection today. International? Uh, no problem. Yes. The end. <laughs> Standing by the Terry and Ted podcast is sponsored by Jaguar Land Rover Laval, where the luxury is unmistakably British, but nobody wears a top hat or a monocle.